Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast are brought to you by U.S. Soy. The farmers and partners at U.S. Soy are exploring the complex problems and innovative solutions of an interconnected world. Tonight, on an all-new Hot Garbage. You want to say that again? I will come after you! Tempers flare as our chef contestants face the toughest trials in trash to table. Ow! That was my hand. I don't know if I can do this. But if the remaining teams can't see eye to eye... I told you to get the bok choy from the blue dumpster. Yeah, I know what you told me. How can they turn garbage into gourmet? Got guests coming down the alley. Feel the heat at 8 Central on Hot Garbage. Okay, that one's real, right? Yeah, I think it might be. I don't know. I don't know. I somehow feel responsible for this. We, we might be a little bit. Oof. I'm Marshall. I'm Amanda. This is Eating Tomorrow from the Groundwork Podcast, a conversation about the future of food and how we'll make it. Today on Eating Tomorrow, how our changing world is setting the menu. We'll forage among trees and trash bins, chug a toe, and chew on the future of disgust. We'll also answer the question, what might we eat tomorrow that we wouldn't even consider today? Lastly, since it's our final episode of the series, we'll reflect on our journey and how it's changed us. Few things are so fulfilling as a walk in the woods, a therapeutic return to the simplicity of plant and beast, the ebb of the trees, the smell of the earth, and to the trained forager, this is nature's supermarket where a watchful eye discovers a delicious bounty. Of course, in Nature's Supermarket, the edible straw mushroom can often be found in the company of its highly poisonous lookalike, the death cap, which is kind of like stocking the eye drops next to the superglue. Remember that egg shortage a while back? And avocados before that? Or supply chain issues during the pandemic that disrupted... everything? Food prices recently hit a 45-year high, with the experience of food poverty hitting more people than ever. And for as much as we are making progress on our food systems, we are still almost entirely dependent upon food coming to us. In the future of food, we might find ourselves going to it. Megan Howlett is a forager and wildcrafter out of the UK. Megan is carrying on a hobby introduced to her by her grandparents and bringing the ancient art of food gathering to the TikTok generation under the username, The Garden Cottage. As soon as you start foraging, this whole world that you didn't realize was there just becomes real in front of you. And it's absolutely incredible. Like you can't walk anywhere now without knowing everything, that every plant that's growing, every mushroom. You're like, I know what that is. I know what that is. And it's that kind of passion of wanting to learn more and more that really gets you into this sort of life. And then it's from there, once you've identified it, it's what can I do with it? What does it taste like? What recipes can I make from it? And it's kind of that spiraling that gets you so deep into this rabbit hole of wild food and foraging. For the vast majority of human existence, we found our food, uncultivated, in the natural environment. There is even a hypothesis that foraging was fundamental to becoming human. As fruit trees became less abundant in a drying climate, we climbed down in search of other food sources, 
began walking on two legs, and condemned ourselves to lives of Netflix buffering. Now, disclaimer, we do not advocate eating everything you find in the woods. But Megan wants to change the perception of mushrooms as little fungal death bombs. Oh, it's it's all about dangers. They're like, oh, but mushrooms are dangerous. Oh, but being on your own in the woods is dangerous. And I like to surprise people by telling them that plants will kill you a whole lot quicker than mushrooms will. Um, and that surprises a lot of people. But they're just there's just this misconception, this microphobia that mushrooms are so dangerous. And in the UK, at least, there's hundreds and hundreds of edible mushrooms, but only a handful that will actually kill you. Long-term foraging relies on something humans are not good at, restraint. Megan notes that her personal forager's code discourages her taking more than 10% of what she finds. This allows nature to keep a foothold, serve the ecosystem of critters that might be eating the same things, and keep producing the good stuff. But you can imagine if the future brings food scarcity and poverty on a large scale, we'll likely do our very human thing and forage it bare. It's not feasible for every person in the world to live off of wild food foraging because it, it just isn't. There, there isn't the structure in nature to support that, and especially the UK. But if I can get people out there foraging and learning about being a steward of all these environments and protecting them in order to get that food back, even if it's a handful of people, that's a handful of people now more wanting to protect the wild spaces we have that weren't before, that were just willingly walking into a supermarket and taking everything off the shelves and never thinking about where it comes from. One way to combat scarcity in foraging is to reclaim urban and developed land for it. There is a growing movement of guerrilla gardening where people plant in areas under city or private ownership. This can be seen as urban environmentalism, food protest, or an outright crime. But it's transforming cities around the world. Ron Finley, a respected guerrilla gardener out of South Central L.A., has spent more than two decades blessing neglected bits of dirt. It's both a cultural movement and a horticultural one. And then there's the guerrilla grafters. They have efforts around the world to graft fruiting branches onto non-fruiting trees, introducing a new publicly accessible food source. Disturbingly, as food poverty increases and compels people to action— so does food waste. In 2021, the U.S. contributed over 80 million tons to it, mostly from residential sources, roughly 40% of the total food it produced. But for some, and maybe soon for more of us, food waste is a means of survival, part of a zero-waste lifestyle, and expands the very definition of foraging. Filmmaker and activist Will Reed spent only $5.50 on food over two years, relying otherwise on what he could find in the trash. After all, most supermarkets discard perfectly edible produce for being bruised or past its sell-by date. And yet most of us have this stigma for dumpster diving that helps no one. As food poverty becomes more common, will it push us to reconsider our tendencies toward food waste? What might it mean if we remove the stigma of dumpster diving? What systems could we introduce that make more deliberate and appealing use of food waste? We've got already boxes of food, that imperfect produce that you can mm -hmm. buy. Mm -hmm. um, we've got sort of a loose acknowledgement now that sell-by dates are, what is that really? Right. Um, 
And I don't know, I just, I feel like if we're mindfully kind of approaching the future, there's a way to change the conversation. So mm-hmm. it's it's not a dumpster at it's all. It's not the stigma of the dumpster, it's the stigma of the food being put in the dumpster. Don't right. put it there. For the girls, it's the same routine every weekday. Rise and shine. Get ready and get to the school bus. Then he's in control. The world's smallest foodie, glaring at you from his high chair. You pilot a tiny spoonful of pureed pears toward his pursed lips, humiliating yourself with propeller noises. You used to be a senior vice president, and now... You radio air traffic control for permission to land spoonited pear lines. The little one just looks at you, judging. He actually loves pears, but the thought of chartering a private plane disgusts him. So, Marshall, what's the strangest food you've ever eaten? Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm so scared. I don't I don't even think I could consider anything that I've eaten strange like I don't I can't go that far. Yeah, I don't I guess yeah, it's meats too. It's like we were in Scotland on Burns night, so there's haggis, right? There's haggis. It's, it's right. just there is. So, it's like when in Rome, when in Scotland, have some haggis and I didn't really know what was in the haggis, so I was like, "Okay, I'm here. I'm going to do it." And it actually was pretty good. Like I actually I don't I mean People have varying opinions on haggis, but I I was cool with it. I mean, I when I looked it up later, I was like, oh, I'm glad I hadn't researched haggis. Let's think about the last time we all made dinner when the refrigerator or pantry was bare. You maybe ate an expired can of peaches or seven olives, or maybe that was just me. Actually, it was it was pickles that I didn't know. I wasn't sure how old they were. It's It was fine. But the, the point is, if our food future brings scarcity, we'll have to be increasingly resourceful with how we feed ourselves and maybe, like with dumpster diving, really sort of challenge some of our food taboos. Zana Serpina and Stahl Stinsley are co-authors of the Anthropocene Cookbook. Anthropocene, by the way, means this human-influenced geological age. And they explore the weird and inventive foods that we might eventually consider because of climate change or population growth or just growing cultural acceptance. Very much key chapter on questioning what are we going to be eating in this age in the Anthropocene. And well, you know, finding purpose for all these things that we most people think are unedible, but we are accumulating more and more in the earth. That's that's a very uh, yeah very 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 good challenge to uh, to work on. They note that overcoming disgust is one of the important ways to expand our food diversity, kind of like those kids that only eat chicken fingers. Disgust is is really relative, you know. Yeah, well, it's not our quote, but all taboos are broken, yeah. and uh, I think it goes, of course, with the book that well, food taboos are also yeah. have been broken and will be broken, and yeah. and and it's. It's of course a very exciting area to be at to to play with 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 food there, yeah. uh, not only of what is disgusting and not, but also yeah, what is what is edible and what is not right. Stahl gave an example from his time in Iceland where he ate fermented shark. I, I wouldn't eat that normally, but 
my friends ate, you know. And so this is like, you know, snack food, you know. This is utterly disgusting, you know. This fermented fish is made from rotten, then cured Greenland or basking shark. The smell of ammonia is so strong that it's akin to urine. And yet, here was Stahl snacking away at the movies. So there are these disgusting foods that some people love. What compels these different personal and cultural responses? And yes, we're about to describe a few real dishes. So sensitive eaters should skip ahead maybe two minutes. And for those who remain, we challenge you to avoid that reaction of, oh, I'd never eat that. And instead consider what kind of future would it be if you did eat it and even enjoyed it? Elbows off the table. First course is stargazy pie. This Cornish pastry, mercifully consumed only one day a year, is a seaside celebration filled with things like cod, smoked haddock, and mackerel, all in a roux of butter and herbs. As you enjoy it, you'll be enjoyed by the whole fish heads sticking out of the top, stargazing right back at you. I'm okay with that one. I don't know. I don't, I'm okay with fish stuff in general. I'm okay with fish stuff except the heads, but okay. Yeah, because then you can give them a personality. They're really... People eat sardines. Yeah. Well, do you want something from the bar? Might I recommend the Sour Toe Cocktail, a specialty of the Sourdough Saloon in Dawson City, Canada? It's a simple recipe, really. It's one ounce of alcohol, one honest-to-goodness dehydrated human toe, Garnished with courage. Mm, that's gonna be a hard no. That one's that one's tricky. But it its origins are these bootlegger brothers in the 1920s. They had frostbitten toes, and it's some homage to that. But here's a fun fact: uh, a Yukon chief medical officer told the bar they said, "Well, if you keep the toes mummified in salt and 40 percent alcohol, it's perfectly fine." It's but it's perfectly not fine. It's <laughs> it's a toe. It's not, it's not my toe. Dawson City, Canada may disagree with you there. Love you guys. <laughs> For the cheese course, Casu Marzu from Sardinia. This block of pecorino is softened with the help of cheese fly larva, which digest it into almost a liquid. The cheese is eaten along with those critters and is described as having an aftertaste that lasts for hours which is nothing compared to the years of therapy. I think it's the word larva that really was <laughs> frightening for me. I just don't see a reason. <laughs> if you didn't tell me that the larva was in there, I if you didn't tell me that one, yeah, if I didn't know. But you'd see the larva considering they'd be alive. Yeah, but and what are the moving? Yeah, but is it like a boba, really? <laughs> like the the consistency of it? I See, here's the thing. Boba is almost too weird for me. <laughs> That's fair. I respect that. I get it. The straws are too big anyway. Cool. All right. Our next dish is stinky tofu. This is still a very popular street food in Southeast Asia. It's made in a brine of fermented milk. It gives it a smell described as raw sewage or stinky feet, but apparently it tastes pretty good. So thanks for your contribution, soybeans. So I just don't quite understand... If taste and smell are so closely linked, how something can smell that bad and taste good? <laughs> I can get past it, I think. I don't understand. I, I think I could do that one. The Yeah, 
I mean, I, I'm usually okay with tofu in all its forms. I'm pro-tofu. Soy, yay. But you've hardly touched your fruit bat soup. Perhaps you'd prefer some sheep eyeball juice? A steaming cup of that coffee that comes from civet feces. I draw the line at monkey poop. Okay, okay, you get the idea. The point is that the nature of disgust is personal and cultural and not clearly defined. And this is the sort of reaction some people have to blue cheese or tomatoes or even beef, which is fine. But consider how a changing world might change our food taboos. Chocolate is pretty universally loved, right? Also, a kilogram of chocolate carries a carbon footprint of five kilograms. Discarded chocolate in the UK alone is responsible for 90,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Might a changing climate introduce whole new taboos on everyday foods and the resources they consume? What do you find gross that you might eventually come to love? What might you be eating now that you'll look back on with future disgust? So were there any foods that grossed you out as a kid that you now love? Yes, yes. Explain. I could not, would not ever touch guacamole. Huh. Couldn't, would, don't give me anything chunky and green. How do you feel about guac now? I love it. I love guacamole. I remember the first time I tried it and it was, it was peer pressure. I got peer pressured into guacamole at a restaurant <laughs> because they made it fresh at the table. And I was like, okay. Oh, they like, literally were making it right there and some, everybody was eating it. And I was like, oh. They demystified it for you. And I was, an ad- like, I was an adult. I was like 20 years old. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. And the first bite, and I was just like, wait, wait, what? You know, we never really explained it. But in addition to other weirdness, At the beginning of each Groundwork episode, there's been an audio commercial for a product or service or show that doesn't exist yet and may never exist, but they might. We call these things artifacts from the future of food, and there's a point to them, honest. Understanding how you might feel tomorrow is really difficult. Hypotheticals don't always inspire the emotions that compel behavior change, but the experience of the unexpected something that feels just feasible enough to be real, well, that might result in the fear or desire to actually do something about it. People aren't expecting things to be done in a cultural, provocative way, and they're not expecting it to be done in this sort of satire, comedic way, or or any kind of subversion at all. That's Jess Charlesworth, future artifact artist and half the creative duo Parsons and Charlesworth. The subversion she describes is that little break from status quo that makes the audience wonder, wait a second, do a double take and actually process their experience rather than letting it wash over them like noise. Ideally, a future product is imbued with some feasibility so that the audience doesn't dismiss it outright as impossible. The products don't necessarily exist, but they make use of technologies that could potentially change the landscape of how we buy things. You know, quite often design fiction is using a technology that isn't quite there yet. We draw our principles from the discipline of design futures, which, like our sponsors, U.S. Soy, asserts that the future can be made intentional and participatory. That is developing momentum in universities and think tanks around the world. You know, I'm just so thrilled that that's happening in schools because that does create change about how we think about what's our future. And they're all dealing with really dystopian things, but they're finding 
technologies to figure it out. They're not going to solve everything, but they're having a go. Our goal for Eating Tomorrow has always been to inspire a sense of agency so that the future can feel intentional and participatory. But we, Marshall and Amanda, are the audience too. We've been exploring the future of food along with you. So as we wrap up our inaugural season here, let's reflect on that journey. So Amanda, I'm curious now then, like, is there anything or like what would you do differently now that we've gone through this, that we've listened to all of this stuff? I will consider what I'm eating more and where it's coming from, how far it's traveled to get to me. I hadn't really thought about those things. I know I should have, but buying things seasonally, things that things that are available now because they are in season. Chef Braveheart pointed out if there's a demand, supply will fill the demand. So if there's a demand for indigenous foods, then there's an opening for that supply to fill that space. Similarly, if we're not demanding non-seasonal fruits, they're not going to make them travel that far. And it's not going to cost as much to move it. And it's not going to cost the environment to move all that stuff across miles and miles. How about you? I mean, like, to be honest, I feel as if I owe myself and like my kids a duty to expand my palate, like to little to actually try new things. You know, being mindful of where they're coming from. Like I agree with that, and I think that that's important. Um, but I'll, I think that goes along with it of actually making an effort to be conscious about. You know what? I'm going to try this. It is going to be different. It is going to feel different. It is going to taste different. It is not going to be something that I am used to, but I need to give it a chance. As much as I preach that to my kids <laughs> as we try to get them to eat more things and different things and vegetables, <laughs> and it's like three-bite rule. You got to try it three times and then decide if you don't like it. Like I need to do that for myself. <laughs> and just sort of hearing about all of these different cultures and all of these different foods and, and technologies and things like that, it's... I, I'm going to have to because there might be a day where the, the few things that I like might not be available anymore. And then what do I do? So that I think for me, it's that. I'm okay with a printed pizza. I'll try it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am, I am too. You're from Chicago. Are you sure you're okay with the printed pizza? I mean, if it's printed, you know, Chicago style, then fine, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Special thanks to Megan Howlett, foraging her way through TikTok as the Garden Cottage. Zana Serpina and Stahl Stensley, co-authors of the Anthropocene Cookbook. Jessica Charlesworth, future artifact artist and half of the creative duo Parsons and Charlesworth. This has been our inaugural season of Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast, a new kind of story about the future of food and how we'll make it. Brought to you by U.S. Soy. If you like what you've heard, tell somebody. But more importantly, get involved in this future that affects us all. 